What is up, everybody? Welcome to The Stack. I'm Alex. I'm Pete. And on The Stack, we talk about a bunch of books that have come out this week. And let's kick it off with a big one. Deadly Class, number 56 from Image oh, Comics. Oh, you're starting here? Starting here, baby. Oh, man. Written by Rick Remender, art by Wes Craig. This is the final issue of Deadly Class, a comic book that we have not only reviewed every issue of, but we did a Deadly Class podcast to talk about the live action show that was very briefly on sci-fi. So we're very invested in this. Definitely spoilers here. If you don't want to know how Deadly Class ends, turn away at this point right here at the top of the podcast. But Pete, talk me through it. How are you feeling about this last issue? Oh, my God. It was just it was emotional. It was it was a wow issue. Like, I loved every second of it. Uh, tight bananas, great art, uh, such a sweet way to end it, S- uh, such a cool last lap, you know what I mean? Taking that last lap with the old gang and giving us a little kind of throwback, super emotional, really was well done. I almost felt like he got like a little defensive about having a nice ending and kind of gave us a little, you know, but man, um, uh, really cool, very surprising. Well, uh, on that note, I thought this was a phenomenal last issue. I was very happy with where this ended up. I think it ended really well, particularly after the past couple of issues have driven home what Rick Remender has been talking about the entire time, that obviously he never went to a school for assassins or anything like that, but Marcus was him. And the things that Marcus was talking about over 56 issues of this book was him to the point where... Marcus almost literally became Rick Remender going through the process of selling Deadly Class in these last couple of issues. It was winky. It was referential. But to your point, he gives a speech where he says, hey, I figured out how to end my story. And I actually sketched it out with a negative thing. But I felt like that's not what I want to do. People are in a very negative place right now. And I want to give them something more positive. And I I didn't take it as him apologizing so much as explaining how and why he ended up in the place he ended up, because it's a book called Deadly Class. You expect them to die at the end and them all die. You don't expect this happy ending. But ultimately, the fact that he leaves us with, like you're saying, the characters, the original way we know them, talking about getting old and what it's going to be like when they get old and how none of them believe they're actually going to really get there. Or at least, I think it's Marcus gives a speech about Everybody is like, oh, we're never going to live until we get old. But secretly, you think you're going to be the one to survive. You're the hero of your own story. Exactly. Uh, Just that brought home everything they've been talking about the entire time. And to be honest, like we talked about, I've been back and forth at times with this books uh, where it resisted the concept of assassin school almost immediately as a lot of Rick Remender books often want to do, but this is such a good ending and such a strong ending and such an emotional ending that it really made me very nostalgic for the journey that we've gone on and makes me want to go back and read the whole thing again yeah. as a yeah. piece now that I know where it goes, now that I know where it ends up. So great, it, great last issue. It does such a great job of, you know, like a lot of good things when you read or watch a movie, the ending is so good. It makes you want to go back in and start over again because you're so happy with how it ends. And uh, because we didn't mention him, Wes Craig, this book would not have worked without Wes Craig and the differences oh. between the modern sequence at the beginning and the sequence of the past at the end are beautiful. It's a haunting, iconic last image that he leaves us with. Great stuff across the board. Really impressive. Let's Such move on. A, talk a about great a, achievement. Uh, let's talk about a very complicated book, Miracle Man, number one from Marvel, written by Neil Gaiman, art by Mark Buckingham. We talked about this, I want to say last week or the week before when we were talking about the Miracle Man anniversary tribute issue that they did. But in case people didn't listen, Miracle Man has a very complicated history. The short version, the way that I understand it, I may have some details wrong about this issue, is back in the day, Alan Moore wrote this very, one of his first deconstructive superhero stories about Miracle Man, the Superman who decided enough of just fighting crime, I'm going to take over the world. Then Neil Gaiman came in for a storyline called The Silver Age. The original storyline was The Golden Age. 
And it again sort of was very self-referential, but in a different way than Alan Moore did it. Issue, if I remember correctly, issue 23 came out. Issue 24 had an incredibly abbreviated print run to the point that it's one of the most expensive comic books ever made, if you can find an issue of it. And issue 25, which was the third part of the arc that Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham were doing, had some finished pages, but you could only really find them in like the dark quarters of the internet. So the way that I understand it here is this is Marvel finally re-releasing this book with remastered art by Mark Buckingham, which he talks a little bit about in the back matter, where he went back to the story and he revamped and redid things and laid them out in a different way that made more sense to him now that we are decades down the road. So that's all the preamble there. Pete, I don't Correct me if I'm wrong, you haven't read Miracle Man stuff before, right? No, I have not. Okay, so given that, just to set up the story here, you have Kid Miracle Man or Miracle Man Jr., I'm forgetting which he is called, who is essentially like Shazam Jr. to his Shazam, has been brought back to life, finds himself in this new world where his mentor, father figure, Miracle Man, has taken over the world. And essentially made it into a utopia, but a fascist utopia. And that's what he has started to come to realize over the course of this issue. But given that you didn't have the basis of these previous issues there, or knowing this long history, what did you think about it just on the raw basis of it being a comic book? Yeah, I mean, I um, I think it... Uh... It starts interesting and ends interesting. It gets a little weird for me, like the naked floating girl is weird. Um, I, I feel like it, it's an interesting premise, idea, kind of uh, setup. I just think it gets a, a little muddy in parts and a little weird. I uh, I think the art's awesome. It's really stylistic, very cool. Um yeah, I just uh, I didn't understand what the big deal was or what was really kind of like, you know, going on. That's my concern. So it's interesting to hear that. That's certainly what I've been worried about is too strong. But I feel like they put so much emphasis on Miracle Man. This is all the wind up so far getting through this. I want to see what they're going to do next. Neil Gaiman, of course, great. Mark Buckingham, great. Yes, great. Lots of interesting stuff going on here. And I think it is a worthwhile historical project to be tackling this in this way. But in terms of what are you going to do with Miracle Man and why have you invested so many resources in this as Marvel, that's what I'm most curious about. So I want to get Plus past it. Yeah, go ahead. Big first issue. It's long. Yes. R- really great if you are into comic book history. Otherwise, I don't know if it works. There you go. All right. The next one, very curious to get into this one as well, GCPD, The Blue Wall, number one from DC Comics, written by John Ridley, art by Stefano Raphael. This is a black label book that has a note in the beginning to say that there are racist slurs that are used in here. And the reason for that is it follows three new beat cops in very different purviews in the Gotham City Police Department. Rene Montoya is the commissioner, one of the beat cops ends up in a situation where she sees a black kid about to pull something out of his pocket and she doesn't shoot him. And so she ends up getting held up as an example of a hero cop to Gotham showing, oh, not everybody shoots black kids. And there's a lot of discussion about what does this mean? Why are they doing this? This is a complicated subject. Renee has, of course, an entirely different perspective because – She's been through the whole history of Gotham. She was a beat cop herself. She had a very complicated relation with Two-Face. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. Personally, I was very worried getting into this book, but I came out of it thinking it was absolutely beautifully written and structured. But Pete, what did you think? Uh, so the title, The Blue Wall, is very uh, – it's, it's, it's kind of this interesting – um, you know, with everything that's going on politically, especially with cops and some people building walls, other people not wanting build walls, the whole red state, blue state thing going on. So, like, I was very nervous when I opened up this book because uh, I was like, oh, God, what are we getting into here? Um, but I was also 
pleasantly surprised with some of the conversations they were having. And also, it was really cool because Renee Montoya, she's been around for a long time. Um, and it was cool to kind of see her get this kind of promotion. And then also the stress of what it means to kind of take on this more responsibility in this role. So uh, I I was... It's it's a tough uh, thing that they're talking about, and it's weird that it's in comic book form, but um, I'm happy they're doing stuff like this. I feel like getting discussions going, talking about the hard things is important. So, you know, I'm glad they're kind of pushing that envelope in that kind of way. Nobody is doing it like John Ridley, I would say, through this and the other history of the DC Universe and a lot of his other work in DC Comics. What he is doing so well in his writing is he is doing things that have provocative ideas, but the majority of the way that comics have always dealt with provocative ideas is in this very Mark Millar way where it's like, oh, isn't this in your face? Can't you see how we're like really provoking you to think about this thing? But instead, he's doing it in a very thoughtful and a very careful and a very measured way, the way that it's structured, the way that it slowly rolls out the story and gets into the different iterations of it. This is great. If you're looking at something that does really explore the police force with a new perspective that I don't think has been discussed really before through the lens of Gotham City and fiction – this is can't miss. Um, also, what's interesting is the way you kind of uh, described uh, when I f- opened this up book and I, I saw this thing, I was like, I thought it was like, a, you know, back when I would buy CDs or, uh, mm-hmm. where there was explicit content warning. It was this warning that I saw that I was like, oh, weird. You don't normally see this in comics. This warning that was like explicit uh, content, and then I was like, "Oh, weird! It's all blacked out, so there's no, there's like a big black marker line through all the bad words." So I was just kind of like, "That's weird that they have a label that says we're going to uh, use were, bad words, and then they're all blacked out." There were a couple of slurs. There were racial slurs in there that were not blacked out, and I think that's why they put it in there. Yeah, that was. Uh, it was a weird. It was kind of a crazy. Uh, okay. Yeah, for I mean, a second you, gotta, you thought you were picking up an NWA album, right, Pete? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man. Public domain number five from Image Comics by Chip Zdarsky. In this issue, are I hesitate to call them heroes, but family has gotten the rights back to domain. The big superhero at the center of the whole controversy that's powering the book. And now that they have the rights back, they have to figure out what to do with it. Can they actually draw a comic book? Can they write a comic book? Maybe not, but they start to figure it out by the end of the issue. I love how this is going in directions I didn't expect. It's very inside baseball, but I love watching that baseball game. Uh, I, this really, this issue, this comic really started to click for me. Uh, I, you know, I thought this was interesting, really cool setup, but this issue, I was just finally like, oh, I am all in. This is really cool story. I love this whole family, the perspectives, all the different ideas. The art is, uh, really super tight bananas, uh, I really think the art matches the tone as well. It's like a really great, smart choice. Uh, yeah, for me, uh, this all really clicked in, and I started to get very excited about this series. And when you say a super tight banana, you're talking about a banana like at the top when you try to rip the top off and you can't, and like you jam your thumb in there, and then you end up bruising the top. No, of the I'm talking about the art is so good. Oh, you're talking about the art, but not actual bananas. That's right. Have you been doing that the whole time? You haven't been talking about bananas? That's correct. Huh. Really changes a lot of this podcast for me, i got to be honest. <laughs> You're still in? You still want to continue? I'm still in. Okay, great. Let's do it. Crypt of Shadows, number one from Marvel, written by Al Ewing, Danny Lore, Rebecca Rowanhorse, Chris Condon, Chris Cooper, Adam Warren, art by Ramon Box, Karen S. Darbo, Jeff Shaw, Abraham Mustafa, Fran Galan, and Adam Warren. This is a collection of... Dark Stories, hosted by Stephen Strange's brother who lives in his basement. <laughs> this is Dark Double. So it's very Tales for the Crypt-esque. There's stuff that's 
out of continuity here. Um, I just to jump to the end, there's a lot going on in this book. I got to be honest, there's a lot that I was like, I don't know what's going on here. But yeah. the last story by Adam Warren, which is X23 yeah, fighting endless slaughter in the infinite swamp. Yeah, fighting man thing until the end of time. Yeah. Great. Worth Amazing. it for that story alone. I completely agree. Yeah, that was my favorite story. It really. You know, some of these collection of stories, some of them are hit or miss, but like, you know, uh, I was really impressed by that. I also like the Moon Knight one. But yeah, that last story was really great. And I also liked the kind of uh, narrator that we had coming, jumping in in between every every new issue. I thought it was a cool, uh, cool way to kind of bind it all together. So I enjoyed yeah. it. I definitely have, I feel like, Low bar is the wrong way to put it because that sounds derisive. But for horror anthologies right now, it's like, sure, release a bunch of them. I'll read some spooky stuff. Sounds good to me. Rogues number four from DC Comics, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Leo Max. This is the final issue of this Black Label series as the rogues go toe-to-toe with Gorilla Grodd for all the gold in Gorilla City. It's a wild premise, but as usual with the Black Label books, they're teaching uh, – treating this, excuse me, in the most intense way possible. Pete, you seem kind of thrown by this one. Take it away. Yeah, this was another wow uh, comic. Crazy dark, kind of sad, but also violently amazing. The art's really unbelievable. But, man, very emotional the way it kind of ends. Yeah, wow. This was uh, one of those ones where I was like, this is a black label and they are pushing it uh, to the max in this. This was, you know, you see these kind of villain plans foiled or spoiled, you know, the superhero saves the day. But what if the villains were just left to spin out on their own and things go horribly bad? Wow. Yeah, this was crazy. I think Joshua Williamson in particular did a really nice job of nailing the rogues here. They're tough characters to hit because they are villains. They have a code, but it's not a heroic code. So it's this weird line that they walk that I could be wrong on this, but I believe was set up by Jeff Johns back during his run on The Flash. But I think Joshua Williamson walks it perfectly here. Really like Leo Max art. And like you said, this is very intense. If you missed it, Check it out on trade. Definitely worth it. Yeah, I would definitely say it's worth checking out for sure. Next up, The Silver Coin, number 15 from Image Comics by Michael Walsh. This issue, not completely, but, and this is spoilers here, but it basically brings everything together in this issue, which blew my mind because that's not anything that I would ever expect for this collection. But as Michael Walsh explains in the back matter, he and his wife are having a baby. He's going to take a break from doing this comic book for a little while. So he just wanted to give it a little, tie it up with a nice little bow here. Brutal. Definitely the one issue that I would recommend. Uh, you should probably read <laughs> the issues that came before. Usually you can just jump right in and read something spooky here, but Great stuff. And and I, uh, one thing, I don't know if you do this, but whenever I pick up an issue of the silver coin, I'm like, first thing I want to know is, okay, who wrote this? Because this is going to give me a sense of what this issue is going to be like. And as soon as you say, see, written and drawn by Michael Walsh, you're like, oh, shit's going to go down. <laughs> you're like, oh, fuck, here we go. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, this fucking series has been just too intense for me. Too, too insane, too horror-driven in, in ways that um, are, are too much for me. But uh, r- kudos to wrapping it all up. Each one of these issues have been such a... You think it would be like, oh, I know what's going to happen. But every time I open it, I'm like, oh, fuck. Where are we going? I am so scared. I don't want to deal. I can't take this. No, no, no. Stop, stop, stop. Uh, but yeah, it was... It was impressive, the fact that it also liked to tied up in here, and uh, we got kind of a touching thing that was like, hey, I'm going to have a baby, man. Good luck. Uh, I'll see you in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Hope you enjoyed the centipedes crawling out of people's mouths. Bye. Have a yeah, nice yeah, time. Bye. I'm like, yeah, please don't 
I'm so glad you're stopping this book and then going to bring a life into this world and try to raise it properly instead of like trying to do both because I feel like that would be too much. Here, speaking as the father of two kids, if you think having uh, a guy exhausted watching various fluids leak out of a small screaming thing is going to calm him down on the silver coin front, <laughs> you're very wrong. Well, I just, I don't want him to bring that darkness to that baby. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. See what happens. Oh, boy. Baby's got to eat a coin someday. <laughs> Avengers number 61 from Marvel, written by Jason Aaron, art by Ivan Fiorello. We are continuing the story of the Avengers traveling through time to stop Mephisto from taking over slash destroying all of reality. Here we're focusing in on the star brand as she figures out what her powers are and what their limits are. As usual, a wild story from Jason Aaron, but also a very emotionally grounded one. What did you think, Pete? This is fun. This is so much fun. Jason Aaron is having a great time, and it shows. This is so cool. This is uh, so interesting. There's so many fun characters in this. I mean, I got to see... Uh, my new favorite, uh, two of my new favorite Ghost Riders, the mysterious Grizzly Rider, and uh, Knuckles O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> Come on, man! This is fantastic. This is Knuckles like, O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> this is like a skeletal version of the little dude who hangs out with the goon. Yes, like. yeah. yes. Oh man, so much Great fun! Stuff. You want to uh, fuck with really Knuckles, good. bro? You yeah. want to fuck with Knuckles? <laughs> Uh, that was very fun. There is insane imagination on display yeah. here. But all the stuff with the star brand really got me by the end. And, you know, I, I forget to read this comic sometimes, frankly, but because there's so much going on and we're reading so many books. But every time I pick it up, I just I love it. It's good stuff. Next up, Flashpoint Beyond, number six from DC Comics, written by Jeff Johns, Tim Sheridan, and Jeremy Adams, art by Zermonico, Mikkel Janine, and Gary Frank. In this issue, the final issue of this miniseries, we are finding out exactly what's going on. Uh, We already kind of had a sense with the previous issues that Batman had preserved the Flashpoint reality in order to keep his father, Thomas Wayne, alive. However, Thomas Wayne, inside that snow globe reality, sort of fighting against things, specifically because his wife, Martha Wayne, has come back as the Joker from the Flashpoint reality. A lot of other stuff going on here, including the Time Masters come into the mix, and we have some teases for things happening at the end here. But with this final issue, what would you think about this miniseries, Pete? Okay, so I kept thinking I was going to hate this. The Mm -hmm. the whole, every issue, I was like, all right, this is where I'm going to start hating this because I don't like Flashpoint and what the fuck is going on. This is way too cray cray. But this is such a cool arc. The, the note from Bruce's dad was so emotional, so awesome. I've been impressed with every issue of this. This is just a banana story. Unbelievable arc. Just, uh, this is, this is cool. I agree with you on the Flashpoint stuff, which we've talked about, I think, every issue. I think we agreed that we weren't the biggest fans of Flashpoint, but I think this, like you said, had a really strong emotional arc. I think there's a story well told. I think the explanation of what Batman was doing and allowing Batman to do something that's kind of wrong, but come at it in the right way and ultimately win out and be a hero by the end, I thought was really well structured by the writers. My one quibble here is I, and I know this is part and parcel with comic books, like this is me fighting against the tide, but the last couple of pages are just setups for other crossovers and other events and big spoiler here, but like if you didn't figure out by Jeff Johns working with Gary Frank, they go back to the Watchmen world at the end and there's new Watchmen stuff coming and there's a character they tease called the Watchman and it just feels like this is this is everything that's wrong with comics. So it went for me enjoying Flashpoint, something that I never thought that I would enjoy at that level because of the emotional grounding that they're bringing here to, well, and, and you fucked it up in the last couple of pages. Oh, with stuff on, that, dude. like, again, I'll read whatever comes out, and if there's a good emotional arc, I'll be into it. That's all that matters. But I don't 
particularly for something like this, I don't need the forever story. I don't need the tee up for what's next. I need the emotional resolution of the story you're telling. And that's what we got here. And I wish they had had the confidence to just stick with that personally. Hmm. Hmm. Let's move on to one that I know you loved, Pete. 10,000 Black Feathers, number two from Image Comics, written by uh, Jeff Lemire, art by Andrea Sorrentino. What? Uh, you're not saying the full oh, The title. Bone Orchard Mythos, 10,000 Black Feathers, number two, part two of The Bone Orchard Mythos, produced by Image Comics, a Jeff Lemire production, executive produced by Andrea Sorrentino. Thank you. And Give read, it its respect. And read by Pete LePage. It was, uh, it's really unbelievable. I mean, first off, like, you know, spoilers, I want to talk about something. At the end, she has the necklace. Did you notice that? (laughs) Did you notice that? That is, so we haven't mentioned the plot. We haven't mentioned anything about a necklace. Yep. All you said was she has the necklace. So right. anybody listening to this who doesn't I know said spoilers. Black I said spoilers. Spoilers. People. Let me give a little bit of a setup of the plot because in the first issue, I, I think, I don't want to speak for both of us, but I was a little lost as to exactly what was going on. I knew there were two timelines there, but it wasn't abundantly clear. It gets clear in this issue that you have two friends who back in the day used to hang out in high school. They were working on a D&D style campaign. Yes. One of them really wanted to be more of a popular kid, went off to a party one night, disappeared. We pick up years later where the other friend is trying to figure out what happened to her friend. There might be some supernatural stuff involved. We don't know exactly what yet. They're sort of edging towards that very slowly. But that's kind of what's going on here. And over the course of it, Andrea Sorrentino uses two very different art styles to depict the two different timelines. What I think worked really successfully about the second issue, as opposed to the first issue, which I thought was beautiful, but I was like, I don't know what's going on, is we dialed into the emotional relationship and why we should be caring about these characters and what's going on in the situation. That's what I really loved about this. Pete, take it away with the necklace. So she gives her friend a necklace as a present. Yeah. And then... At the end, her friend is dead, but she has the necklace. Oh, man. What? So either... uh, Yes. She was there when she died. Right. Or... Yeah. You know, she got it, like, at post. You know, maybe, like, the family was like, hey, you should have this. She Mm. said she... You know what I mean? I'll throw out a third possibility. Okay. She has her neck. Oh, come on, dude. Like All right, her, first off, her neck I, popped off and then popped off. I, I agree. All right, let's take let's back up the truck here. So, sure. first issue, it was kind of like, oh, what? It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. I don't understand who's who and what's going on. This does an amazing job telling this um, just classic kind of story of people when they're young being best friends. Will will always be best friends. Nothing, and then life happens. Some friends get into sports. Other friends get into D&D. Sometimes yeah, drinking, like, drugs, these things pull people apart. Life, I'm into boys, yeah, I'm like not. Yeah, it's like the sort of thing all, if, like, it, let's say for 15 years or so, you taped a comic book podcast, and then one of the three hosts had dinner. <laughs> you know? I don't want to point any fingers. This is just a hypothetical situation. But if they We've told been doing you- it longer. We've been saying 15 years for, I think, like two years now. <laughs> so I think it's like, it's a much older. We should do it some more research. But the art is just super type bananas. Just like on, just sets this tone in such a cool way. And I love this relationship. This is such a classic kind of like, junior high kind of relationship and is so sweet and so amazing uh, in so many different ways. And you, you feel that you're pulled into this world in this second issue in such a great way that it makes what happens like so crazy and messed up. And I can't wait to find out no more. And I hope uh, this friend, you know, is gets vengeance or something happens in a good way because right now it's really effed up. Alien number two from Marvel, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Julius Ota. In this issue, we're continuing the arc of a bunch of androids 
trying to recover an alien egg for the purposes of potentially saving at least part of humanity. Aliens are not supposed to be able to detect androids. Guess what happens this issue? The xenomorphs detect some androids, and it goes all horribly wrong to shit. Pete, what'd you think about this one? We've been doing a bunch of alien stuff uh, over the years, and uh, and I keep thinking to myself, man, I'm going to get so sick of this that I'm not going to like these anymore. But this is great, and I and I'm I'm very impressed with this. I'm impressed that I'm not sick of this yet. They're doing such a great job of giving us enough of the thing we know and love about aliens, and then also making some different decisions. There's some fun twists and turns here. Uh, very cool, very interesting. You know, you're sick of people landing like, hey, this isn't going to be a big deal. We got some guns. We can take anybody out, and then. Uh, uh, we got some different choices being made, so very exciting. Batman One Bad Day, Penguin number one from DC Comics, written by John Ridley, art by Giuseppe Comancoli and Cam Smith. Like the rest of these issues, this is focusing on a villain in Gotham City and showing what happens with one bad day. However, the twist here is the bad day already happened to Penguin. He lost his entire empire in Gotham, and here we're getting him coming back to Gotham and slowly trying to build it back up again against his new antagonist, the Umbrella Man, who is, and spoiler here, literally the guy who held the umbrella for him. Um... It's great. I'm a sucker for this sort of storytelling of like starting with Penguin being like, I just have a gun with one bullet. How am I going to get it to town? And then slowly building it back up over the course of the story. I thought the Penguin Batman relationship was great here. And of course, Giuseppe Comincoli's art. I'll I'll read anything he draws. Uh, yeah. I mean, let's start with the art. It's it's unbelievable. It is just um just such a great depiction of Penguin and this, you know, sometimes you see, especially with like Penguin or other characters, sometimes people make different choices and it feels a little kind of like, okay, it was a different, a different Penguin. But this really feels like the Penguin we know and love and also gives us new kind of information on a character we think we know so well. I was so impressed with this. This is such a cool... I've been loving all of these. This has been such a fun series. Um, and, man, uh, just I've been eating it up. Uh, just so great. And I'll also mention this is so totally different from The Blue Wall, the other John Ridley book that we've talked about in the stack here. It's just... It, it's fun. You know, there's emotion in it, but it's not the same level of intensity. It's a very different sort of thing. I think if you like Batman, the animated series, you might enjoy this a bit. Um, it has that same level of, like, fun and play to it. It's very enjoyable. Next up, Crashing, number two, from IDW Publishing, written by Matthew Klein, art by Morgan Beam. This takes place in a world where superpowers are real and a doctor has to tend to them. I don't think we covered the first issue of this book, but I was curious to check it out. I will give a shout out in particular to Morgan Beam's art, which I feel like is a little cartoony, but in the right way and leads into it. I enjoyed looking at this book quite a bit, and I also appreciated that this book didn't go the easy directions necessarily with the concept but what did you think, Pete? Uh, I, this was too intense. This was a little too much for me. The stress of what was going on and the the juggling act and the people's lives at stake, I, I had a hard time with this. This was almost too intense for me to enjoy. Um, but they did a great job of portraying that stress and the art really brought that to another level. So there were some real amazing choices. But for me, uh, I, this was not my wheelhouse of uh, fun. So I was just like, uh, I don't want to, I want this to end, get this away from me. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Here's one that I think is in your wheelhouse of fun. Midnight Suns, number two from Marvel, written by Ethan Sachs, art by Luigi Zagaria. There is a new mystical threat to the Marvel Universe, so of course it's up to a bunch of the mystically inclined characters to team up to stop it, and also Wolverine is there. Pete, take it away. 
Well, yeah, so this is great. This is just fun. We're, uh, you know, we get a little Abadella Harkness here. So uh, that's uh, Agatha, sorry. Mm-hmm. And uh, just. <laughs> I, I like I, that you didn't even attempt to say an actual real name. You just said Abadalia. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what I mean. Um, I do. It's, uh, it's a great team. I love the team on this. Uh, also, I'm a sucker anytime Doom's there. So this was really cool. Like the setup, I think this does a great job of kind of like getting you excited for what's going on and all the people involved. Um, but yeah, I also like the fact that we fought Doom, but that wasn't the main thing going on. There was also like there's more happening, but also really cool to kind of see that uh, uh, happen. So yeah, I'm loving it. You know what? Reading this issue, it really struck me that of character reinventions, which some are good, some are bad, mm-hmm. having Doom as a magic villain really works, I think. Yeah. You know, uh, it's something that slowly has happened over the decades where he has the tech stuff, he has the magic stuff, he started as a tech guy. Um, it's good. He should be the master of everything, and I think it's very fun. And his in interactions with Clea in this issue in particular yeah. are really fun because – they're two jerks, so who's going to be the bigger jerk to each other? Yeah. It's great. Good times. Black Adam, number five, from DC Comics, written by Priest, art by Rafa Sandoval. We're following two bonkers storylines here. Actually, a bonkers storyline and then a straightforward storyline. One is that Black Adam briefly was dying and so passed part of his power onto somebody else who is a young doctor. Great, very straightforward concept. The other one is that Black Adam is trying to uh, track down the bacteria from space, who is actually a bunch of space gods who are trying to destroy him and potentially the entire world, maybe the universe. So, you know, lots of stuff going on there. What do you think about this book? Uh, this is this is fun, cool. I think it's like a, a classic DC action here. Uh, you got a great last page reveal, a solid AF art. Uh, yeah, this is cool. I have a little bit of a hard time holding on to the Black Adam storyline, but the new, what are we calling him, White Adam, I guess, storyline, I think is very fun. It's surprising to me that they didn't go for the young superheroes, gets Black Adam's powers and figures out how to deal with them. It feels like that was the pitch. And then Priest was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Can do my own thing. Yeah, so there you go. So it's a lot of stuff going on at the same time, but Rafa Sandoval's art is great as always. Just yeah. really good superhero stuff, and the villains are wild. True Cult number three from IDW Publishing, written by Scott Brian Wilson, art by Leanna Congas. This is following a bunch of fast food workers who are sucked into a cult conspiracy. We're getting even deeper and darker into it in this issue. And listen back a couple of weeks. We talked to them about the book and the influences there. This is great. I, I want to give a shout out in particular to Liana Congas's art and layouts. There's some super fun stuff here where they're just going down staircases and mm-hmm. I love those pages. I love the layout. I love the tight panels on everything. Just very fun. Yeah, they also do this thing where they have kind of like the same uh, image with different stuff happening, which is really impressive. And and just to mention, for anybody who didn't listen to the live show, uh, Liana drew each of those individually. So it's not just like reprinting a paddle. It's actually drawing them over and over and over again, which is a bonkers amount of work. But I think it pays off. Yeah, I agree, and I'm glad that we talked to them about that on our live show because I was worried we didn't cover it, you know? Um, You son of a bitch. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, this is creative and different and cool, and uh, they're kind of pushing things and trying things, which is impressive, and I also loved how it ended. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just need somebody losing their fucking mind on somebody. You know what I mean? I like that, and I also like the discussion about fast food tacos, which are generally bad. Predator number three from Marvel, written by Ed Bryson. It depends on, because like food truck tacos are different. And if you come in. Oh, I don't, I don't consider that fast food tacos. If you okay, find like okay, a good. good taco truck. Yeah. That's okay, the best I was going to say, because you get them fast. Yeah. But, but I'm talking about like. Taco Bell is what you're talking about. I'm talking about like Taco Bell or Del Taco or something like that. Like specifically with Taco Bell, 
I in college I was like, oh, Taco Bell's my thing. I love it. <laughs> and then I made the mistake of watching them making the tacos behind the counter one time, and it's like, oh, that's a cock gun. You're putting everything on with a bunch of cock guns. What are you doing? No, thank Don't you. Don't wa- watch how the sausage is never, made, man. Never watch it. Do no. not do it. Predator number three from Marvel, written by Ed Bryson, art by Kev Walker. This is following a woman who watched her family slaughtered by predators and so has gone to slaughter a bunch of predators herself. It all blows up her face in a big way, this issue. Um, you know, I say this every issue, but Ed Bryson's art uh, writing is great, but it's Kev Walker's art that is bringing me back here. Love the characterizations, love the alien worlds. Yeah, this is, uh, again, you know, not to sound like a broken record here, but I'm like, all right, dude, you know, this Predator stuff is going to eventually get old, right? But they are just killing it. It is so enjoyable. The art alone (laughs) is worth it to pick this up. Um, By the way, if you're just listening to the podcast, Pete threw up everywhere just now. Yeah, I just uh, puked a little bit. Uh, I was so excited (laughs) about the art. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, it it's just it's such a cool uh, kind of take on Predator, or something we haven't seen before. I haven't seen uh, Prey, uh, the latest Predator installment, but this what? Uh, oh, it's so good. I know it's on it my out. it's on my list, asshole. Don't don't. I'm just bringing it up. Like this to me would be. I would love to see this made into a movie. It's so good. Nightwing, number 97, from DC Comics, written by Tom Taylor, art by Bruno Redondo, after Blockbuster was killed by Heartbreaker? Heartstealer? Mm-hmm. I'm forgetting what the name of the character is. Last issue, we're getting a new storyline here with the fallout, as one of the Maroni gang leaders is being transported from Bloodhaven to Gotham. Goes predictably wrong, but it is up to Barbara Gordon and Nightwing to take him to a safe haven, with a huge, huge twist at the end here. Huge twist. Every issue of this book is perfect. I don't I don't know what to say about it at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is so much fun. Nightwing and Babs together are so great. That last page twist, like I don't know how I feel about it. But uh yeah, the 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 art is beyond tight bananas. This is just uh this is so good. Yeah, this is the tightest bananas I've ever seen. And if Justin was here, he'd definitely be shouting more about the Barbara Gordon-Dick Grayson relationship. Yeah, There is a phenomenal scene here with a hilarious rejoinder by the gangster that they're trying to keep safe. Just great. I love reading this book. It's so good. Uh, It is going to go down in history as one of the best runs of all time. Next up, Hellboy in Love. Number Uh one from Dark Horse Comics, written by Christopher Golan, art by Matt Smith, right in time for Valentine's Day. It's coming (laughs) out. But this is a five-issue series. This is the first of a two-part arc as Hellboy teams up with a doctor, scientist, archaeologist, whatever it is. They're tracking down some goblins, and she's flirting with him real hard throughout this issue. Pete, what'd you think about this? I don't know about like real hard. You know what oh. I mean? Like she's she's keeping it classy. She's not like being weird about it. She uh she sees that fist and it can't be missed. Oh, you get easy with that, dude. I don't know about hey. that. Um yeah, this is just She's gonna uh, make Hellboy into a hell man. <laughs> oh my god. You, I don't know what's more upsetting. Is your face when you said that or you're like <laughs> Pete, she's going straight for that BPRD. Oh, <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god, you are the worst. Uh yeah, all those crazy things aside, this is a great book. Uh classic Hellboy fun. This is just awesome art, uh, great storytelling. You know, uh, maybe Hellboy will, you know, find a nice relationship. Who knows? I'm excited to find out. I This is very much outside the story, but I'm so curious how this book is going to structure out just based on the fact that I was like, oh, one of five, that sounds fun. And then the end of the issue, it says to be concluded. And I was like, what? Did I misread the numbers on the top? What is happening here? How is there a two-issue arc in a five? I don't know what's happening. But like you're saying, and like we've been saying for weeks now, 
it's wild that just Hellboy books are coming out nonstop. Below and up, dude. It's just like, did somebody say they missed Hellboy comics? <laughs> Hellboy comic, Hellboy comic, Hellboy comic. They're all good, though. They're yeah. super fun. They're just, yeah. just such a reliable, like, it's just such a reliable book. And the yeah. art is good. The writing is good. Good times. You know what you're getting and it delivers. Let's talk about this. X-Men number 16 for Marvel, written by Jared Dugan, art by Joshua Gassara. We talked to Jordan D. White, the editor of the X-Men line, on our live show this week. And this is, let's just, I'm just going to blow up your spot here, but I assume this is the first X-Men book you've read in a good long while, because we haven't been talking about them on the stack. So lots of wild stuff happening here, but this does tie back to one of the X-Men Unlimited issues, the one where... X-23 and Darwin and somebody else I'm forgetting about went inside the Children of the Vaults place where time was sped up. Phenomenal issue where they basically lived through an entire lifetime inside of their by themselves, getting old and then coming out and then their lives being reset. Go back, check out that issue. I don't remember. It was Oh, it was one of the giant size X-Men issues and I don't remember which one. Uh, but absolutely fantastic. Here... Forge says, you know what? We can't just leave them in there. Let's go back in and get Darwin out of there. There's a big twist at the end. Some stuff is happening with the other X-Men outside. I thought this issue was great, mostly because I love that giant size X-Men issue. So I was very excited to see it followed up on. But Pete, you haven't been a big fan of the X-Men books. What did you think about this one? What did you think about Forge wearing Caliban like a suit? Yeah, that was crazy, right? Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, it was super creative and very cool. I also love the, you know, diamond head stick together line. Um, I didn't know what I was seeing for that kind of reveal of who's in that kind of uh, coffin chamber thing. Do we want to talk about spoilers? Uh, I would. I, I have some questions. Sure. So the end of the book, and this is spoilers here, but at the end of the book, they've been going on this mission to get Darwin out of the vault where they thought he was. Darwin isn't in there. Laura is. X-23, a.k.a. Wolverine, is in there. So the open question is, who actually left? What happened to Wolverine? Who is the Wolverine who's been running around? Who is this X-23? The implication is that she never left, but maybe Darwin actually did. So it recontextualizes a lot about what happened to that giant size X-Men. There's questions there. They haven't been answered yet. I wasn't sure if it was like old X-23 or if it was Jean Grey X-23 type no, of thing. It's the, the, I think the implication is that it's the X-23 who went inside of the vault, who we thought died and then was resurrected, I believe, through the eggs, if I remember correctly, but was actually seemingly kept alive by the children of the vault. So now there's two X-23s running around. So that challenges what they do with these resurrection protocols. What happens with that? Do they eliminate one? Are there two of them? What's going to happen? Okay. All right. And uh, uh, I said uh, Jean Grey, but I meant... um, well, what's her name? Married to Gambit there. Uh, Rogue? Rogue, yeah. No, it's not Rogue. She had a white hair strike streaks. in her hair because she's old. Oh, okay. They were just It's like how it's... you have a gray beard, and I have like a little bit of gray on the side there, a little bit of a Reed Richards. It's not all gray, you fucking piece of shit. I got, a, I got some gray in my beard like uh, Reed Richards. Oh, my God. I hate you. Uh, so, yeah, I was kind of like, uh, first off, I enjoyed this. Uh, it was I I wow. trust the Dukes. Uh, you know he's a great writer. I thought it was some fun creative choices uh, being made here, and also it was kind of like its own thing. It, it, you know it, that didn't it was a little separate from Fuck Island and all the you know it's connected to that madness going on, but it was a little different enough that I didn't feel uh, you know like I was uh, stuck there on that shitty island. Uh, also, a fun shout-out to the Luxor in Vegas there. That was a clear uh, yep. clear influence. I will say one of my things with the Children of the Vault is I need to do sort of a mental Rolodex thing of like, okay, which of the X-Men villains that are in some sort of time bubble where time speeds up is this one? Because there's multiple ones of that. It's a lot of stuff, but... Again, good issue. 
I liked it. Good art. Let's move on and talk about duo also, numbers. Yeah. The the thing that really sold me, which I'm surprised we're not talking about, is someone punches fucking Scott Wright in his fucking face. And knocks that shitty visor right off his face. Well, it was havoc and he almost messed some stuff up because he did that. So the lesson sure, of the but book it was still, is don't mess was, with Cyclops. No, it was nice to see. It was yeah. nice to see because don't do Cyclops it. is sloppy and he deserves that punch in the face. I guess. I don't know. You're going to have some sort of a schism going on there. Duo number six from DC Comics, written by Greg Pak, art by Koi Pham. This is, I believe, bringing this title to a close here, at least for right now, as our two folks trapped in the same brain battle many, many immortal people. What did you think about this? Well, I feel like this was a great ending to this arc here, this first arc. Uh, cool story, great action. Really liked the ending. Uh, I really enjoyed the villain. Had like a cool Lex Luthor vibe to him. I thought this was uh, this was really fun. I mean, you know, I'm a sucker for the Pac, you know. Yeah, I thought this was really great as well. I loved the amping up of different societies as they're fighting for control of mm-hmm. these. Oh my gosh, it's not microbes. What is it called? Little flying. Nanites? Nanites, thank you. I don't know why I blanked on the Nanobots. Nanobots, yeah. Um, Where they're all fighting over this thing. I thought that was very well done, very creative. I hope there's more of this because the team did such a good job with this. If you didn't check it out, definitely go pick up the trade. Next up, Eve, Children of the Moon, number one for Boob Studios, written by Victor Laval, art by Joe Ming-Yuan. And this is picking up in the Eve miniseries where she discovered a cloned version of herself. She ended up saving the world, kind of. And now she's dealing with one part of the world that kind of doesn't want to be saved with a big twist at the end here. I thought this was really good, and I imagine, Pete, given the fact that there is a fighting teddy bear in this book, you probably liked it as well. All right, well, it's interesting you bring that up. First off, a lot of cool twists and turns happen in this issue. I really loved the kind of uh, 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 turns it was taking, though the way it kind of led us along and then kind of uh, twisted things. I thought that was super smart, well-written, great art, just really solid story. And I don't know how I feel about the bear yet. I was a little kind of, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, this is just the, um, what is it, the first or second? Yeah, it's the first issue. So uh, I'm not sure uh, what the bear has done. I know it's uh, super important. So, Well, there was a whole miniseries before this. I think we only talked about the first or maybe first and second issue on the stack. So we might not have caught up on it. I'm very surprised because fighting teddy bear seems to be right up your alley. I do. I mean, you know, when you say that, I'm immediately like, hell yes, sign me up. But, you know, I'm, you know, just because you're a teddy bear doesn't mean I'm just going to, you're going to get a pass from me. You know what I mean? Oh, fair enough. You used to work in FEO Schwartz. Did you feel the same way at the Build Bear workshop? Uh, those are separate uh, things, but yes, I did. There uh, was a Build Bear workshop in the FAO Schwartz. Come on, let's not pretend they're different things, Pete. Well, you know, it's a little different. You know it's I mean? not There's a Build a Bear store. You know, and oh, you didn't was... talk to them? Were they like hanging out by themselves and stuff? Yeah, yeah, they were their own separate things. They kind oh, of worked under the umbrella, but they were like, you know, <laughs> we're better than you. And I was like, fuck you, wow. I work in Legos, man. Man, that's way cooler. I got to be honest. Yeah. Deadly Neighborhood Spider-Man number one from Marvel, written by B. Earl and Taboo, art by Juan Ferreira. In this issue, Spider-Man has taken his stuff, terrible way to say that, over to Los Angeles. He is working on a science project that seems to be giving him some weird, bad dreams. There's a big twist here that maybe we'll mention, I don't know, maybe spoilers if you want to stay away, but it ties back to a classic comic book storyline in a very surprising way that I was not expecting. Um, I was interested to see where the storyline was going, super into where it left us, but throughout, I think Juan Ferreira's art is dreamlike and nightmarish in exactly the right ways. I would say it was a tight banana. 
<laughs> I agree. The the art uh, alone was uh, worth the price of admission. This kind of creepy, uh, artistic take on Spider Man that was so creative and so cool really made this worth it. Uh, that being said, I don't know what the fuck is going on uh, in this, and I almost don't care because I'm having so much fun with the. Uh, art that uh, fits a kind of fun Halloween theme, um, but man, um, it's it's really awesome and very. Some of these panels are just absolutely stunning. So um, I will get into spoilers now. So if you don't want to know, if you're listening, tune away for the spoilers. But I will explain the appeal of this book. So this is Spider-Man interacting with various indigenous characters. Uh, this is something that B. Earl and Taboo have done throughout the Marvel Universe before, and it ultimately leads up to the reason that he is having these weird nightmares is because of a creature called the Demon Bear, who comes from the Demon Bear storyline back from New Mutants back in the day that was written by Chris Claremont, I believe, which is one of the most iconic storylines of all time. So seeing that Demon Bear come out of that portal just made me very excited just on the base level of like, oh, this is something that people have not touched for decades because it is so revered. I'm excited to see what they do with it. And I'm excited to see how they mix it up with Spider-Man and these new characters that have nothing to do with new mutants. So I think it'll be interesting. Wow. Yeah. I'd, uh, I don't know if I blacked out on that or it's a hole in my knowledge, but I didn't know about that because I was like, what is a bear doing? Yeah, it's just a bear. It's a big old bear. <laughs> it was Yogi. Is after a picnic basket? <laughs> <laughs> Fables number one hundred Fables number one hundred fifty six from DC Comics, written by Bill Willingham, art by Mark Buckingham. In this issue of Fables, more things happen. All right, dude, come on, stop. Uh, you want to talk about super tight bananas art? I mean, this is just <laughs> I do. Top I do notch. want to talk about super. Tight I mean, the paneling art. is so fun and so great. This is a crazy great issue. Love how it starts. Just, uh, it gets into some fucked up shit. Um, and I, you know, I was also super happy to see the racist guy get his head bitten off. But man, uh, just also making some comments about police again. Uh, there was a fun police theme in our stack here. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, just continues to be the powerhouse that it's always been in such interesting, creative ways. Fables is just like a how-to of comics at this point. It just, uh, it's really fantastic. I think that's a good way of putting it. I didn't mean to be totally glib here because every issue is like, yep, that's an issue of Fables. I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of things happen to great. the characters. It's not, there's no theme on an individual issue basis so much as, more things happen in this story and I will continue to follow it because it's good and I like looking at it. And there you go. Last but not least, Deceased War of the Undead Gods, number three from DC Comics, written by Tom Taylor, art by Trevor Hairside. In this issue, we find out how the zombie anti-life virus has gotten to the rest of the universe. And we also get a big revelation about everything that has been going on behind the scenes with this, with the big new enemy that's going to take on our heroes. Everything that Tam Taylor does with end of the world apocalyptic DC universe stuff completely hits, and this is no different. Yeah, I mean, I would think like, oh man, this deceased thing is getting old, but nope. I mean, Tom Taylor is a juggernaut of a writer and does some makes amazing choices. There's this crazy scene with the dad and son. Uh, that's really heartbreaking, but I was so happy to see Lobo. Uh, so yeah, it was a real roller coasters of emotions, but also really great. Uh, this deceased uh, thing is still a lot of fun. 
Yeah, this is great. And I kind of imagine this is the last storyline because they've amped it up as big as it can go. But I can't wait to see how bad it's going to get. And if you'd like to support our podcast, patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. to Crowdcast and YouTube. Come hang out. We would love to chat with you about comic books, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app of your choice to subscribe, listen, and follow the show at Comic Book Live on Twitter, comicbookclublive.com for this podcast and more many more. Until next time, keep getting that BPRD. Oh, see you at the comic book shop. Alex, just to-